All right, what is, a little question for you, what's been one of the, the best days of your life? Or what's one of the best experiences you've ever had? So like, you're like, man, this was the best. I wish I could tell you this story. Uh, I loved going through this, this little, this question for me. Like all these things are like, oh, this story is so funny and this was so great. Um, but I'll just share one from this last week, a really good day from this last week. Uh, I received a Christmas present that was four years in the making. Um, <laughs> yes, my mother, bless her heart, she bought uh, tickets to Hamilton for, for myself, my wife, pre-COVID. And then COVID happened, and then it shut down everything, and so those tickets could not be redeemed. Until this week, when they were finally at the Ordway in Minneapolis, it was back, and so me, my mom, my dad, my wife, two of my children, we got to go see Hamilton. And it was, it was great. Like, it was so fun. Uh, the music was great. The performance was great. Stories, obviously, uh, excellent. We had a great time together. It was, um, you know, I hold it high in, in the days of my life. It was privileged. Well, I share all that because what we're talking about this morning is a day in the life of these two people, these two uh, followers of Jesus that I think any of us would trade our best day for. No matter how great or how wonderful the experience is, it's like, if you could do this thing, uh, you would do it. Because what's happening for these two people, these two, um, they weren't part of the 12, but two followers of Jesus, is they're walking, their whole life has been kind of smashed. They're pretty disappointed. They're leaving uh, their pilgrimage from Jerusalem. They're going back home, and they feel like frauds. And then Jesus comes to them, and he makes all of human history make sense. All the things that they didn't understand, all of a sudden, Jesus, he pieces it back together. And their whole encounter, he, he preaches probably the best sermon we could ever hear to these two people. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, this walk with these two people, Jesus. So the outline for the passage, it's very simple. The walk and then the Gospels. So it's the walk and the Gospels. And you're going to see this passage is more of a narrative. It's, it's telling this story. And so uh, we're going to be going through that with... Uh, just kind of walking through the series of events that's happening as Jesus goes with them. Uh, what I hope you leave with, you're like, hey, what did he want me to remember? It's this, that the entire scriptures point to Jesus. All the scriptures point to Jesus and should primarily be built on them. And our lives should primarily be built on them. Our faith and our life should primarily be built on them. Okay, so let's talk about the walk. So what's, what's happening? The walk. Well, these, these two people, we don't exactly know who they were. So it doesn't say this guy and that. It, we do have a name. There's Cleopas and then somebody who was with him. Uh, some people believe that it was, it was him and his wife. Uh, in John 19, at the crucifixion, there's a guy named Clopas, which so one letter off, who's at the crucifixion with his wife, Mary. So it, it, was it just like uh, they just spelled the name differently? That's a possibility. We don't really need to know necessarily who they were because we can, really, we can draw a lot about them from just the information in the text. Uh, they knew that Jesus came to redeem Israel. So they were aware of Jesus' teachings. They, they were tight with the 11 because they, they knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. These women said this thing. So it wasn't just the, the 11, but actually Jesus' inner circle of people they knew. So I would say they were disciples without being the apostles. They were not part of that, um, that, that close. Potentially a, a husband and a wife. Some people even believe it was maybe Jesus' aunt and uncle. Either way, it doesn't necessarily matter. What matters is they knew Jesus. They, they knew him to some degree, for sure knew his teaching. 
They probably saw his miracles. And so they're on this roller coaster because they would have been in Jerusalem all week. Uh, they would have been there from the beginning till this event. And that's when most of the Jews would come into town for this pilgrimage and they would stay the whole time and then they would leave after the Passover. So these two, they were there. So what did they see? What, what did they experience so far? Well, one, they saw Jesus come into town on a donkey. You're thinking, big deal. <laughs> like donkeys us are kind of lowly, but to them, this was actually donkeys. That was, a, that was an awesome thing. It was like a Clydesdale to them or whatever majestic animal you can imagine. Uh, and so they come in, a, Jesus comes in a donkey, just like King Solomon came in on his coronation on a donkey. And then uh, people, they put down the palm branches. Uh, and this is similar to Jehu's coronation. As he rode in on a donkey and people put down their coats saying, our lives are yours. You, 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 they're for you to control. And so there's this kingly entrance. And all the people, as they put down their palm branches, Jesus rides in this donkey. They're yelling, Hosanna, God saves, God saves. And then he comes in and he's a big deal. He flips the tables in the temple. So he overturns some of, some of the Jewish money, monetary system that's happening. He doesn't like it. He says, this is bad. Flips it over. It's, he's very authoritative. He's in, in the temple, and he's teaching all week long. He comes back. He keeps coming back. He's teaching with kingly authority. And so Jesus, he is um, he's shaping up to be the person they thought he was going to be. So they've been excited that he's the one that's going to redeem Israel. And to them, redeeming Israel meant that he was going to overthrow the Romans. So they've been excited about him. They, they think he is the person they're hoping he was going to be, and then he's killed. So all of this hope, all this expectation is gone. He's murdered. And they think he must not be the Messiah. He can't be the person we put our hope in. And so they walk back to Emmaus, disappointed. It's a seven-mile walk, and it probably felt like 700 miles because, because they, they've, they've got this... Yeah, this, this hopeful expectation, and now they're hopeless. And so every step is a drudgery. Every step is difficult. And I bet you felt that before. You have an excited expectation for something. Like you're looking forward to it, and then it isn't what you thought it would be. Isn't that horrible? Like, doesn't that, uh, it never feels good. It's hard. And then in hopelessness, it can feel like it's never going to get better. Like, this is the worst thing ever, and I don't want to walk another step. I don't want to live another day. I don't want, and this is probably how they're feeling. They've, they've put their hope in Jesus, and it's no more. So they're going back, and it's not just them going back. There's, there's thousands and thousands of people returning home from this pilgrimage. So all these people are going back, leaving. And then we have this interaction with Jesus. All of a sudden, Jesus catches, catches up to them. So it's here, verse 15. It says, they talked and they discussed these things with each other. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he says. Okay, so the first thing you have to notice is Jesus, he catches up. We're going to learn later that he has the ability to appear and disappear. So like, I don't know if it was like, he just like showed up 10 feet behind him and like kind of like ran up and caught up to him what the deal was, but he catches up to them. They're also probably walking slowly and they don't recognize him. And I don't think he was like, you know, wearing a fake mustache and like big glasses and, you know, like they just don't, they don't see who he is. And that's kind of confusing because they, they're following him to some degree. They've already been following him. Uh, And so uh, they catch up. 
don't recognize him. Why didn't they recognize him? What was up with that? I think there's a couple of possibilities. First, is, first possibility is that they had no faith in the resurrection, and therefore they couldn't see. They, had, they didn't have faith in the resurrection. Uh, so Jesus, Jesus talks about this, this, this principle that sometimes when people don't have faith, they miss the obvious. He says they don't have eyes to see. And so in Matthew 13, Jesus' disciples, they ask me, say, why do you always speak in parables? Like, why don't you just tell them how it is? And Jesus says, he says, because their hearts are hard. He quotes Isaiah. He says, um, you will listen but never understand. You'll look and look but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. He says, their heart's hardened and they just can't see the obvious. They should get it, but they can't see it. And so their eyes are blinded. So that's one possibility. They don't believe Jesus has resurrected. They don't have faith in him. And so they can't see him. Uh, the second option is that God has just obscured their vision. God's got an ulterior motive. He has a reason for it, and so they don't recognize him. Verse 16, it says that they were kept from recognizing Jesus. Uh, and so this, this indicates that God, he didn't want them to see. He didn't want them to understand at that time. And I think this is a more likely scenario, and so we're going to circle back to this because I think this is, is really helpful to tie the whole passage together. And so at the end, we're going to talk more about this idea. I want to keep moving, though. Jesus, he focuses. So Jesus, he catches up, and he begins to evangelize these two people. He, gets to, he begins to speak with them. And this may seem like common sense, uh, but the best evangelists, evangelists, they operate like Jesus. He, he approaches them, and he says, hey, what you guys talking about? What's going on? Why are you so serious? Why do you look so sad? He, he just engages with them. Uh, and then, so, so he wants to know them. And then they're like, oh, Jesus. Actually, don't say Jesus. They don't know it's him yet. They're like, oh, mister, don't you know all the things that have been happening in Jerusalem? Where have you been? How could you not know? Uh, and there's an irony here because he's the only one that knows. <laughs> they're like, you don't get, how could you not know? And Jesus is like, how could you not know? Um, you know? <laughs> and so then he, he, he's, like, he's like, hey, what things? So he asks a question. They're like, you're silly. He says, what things? And I like this because... Uh, as a pastor, I often give gospel presentations. We talk about the gospel and I do it from the pulpit, but most effective is gospel conversations. Like, we're not looking to talk at people. Like Jesus does here, we talk with people. Uh, and so he has this conversation with them and he allows them to speak. And he doesn't stop them, he doesn't interrupt them. And even as they say things that are not quite right, he takes it in. He listens to them. And I like this too because they have serious doubts. And so as they're sharing their thoughts and their doubts, Jesus just keeps listening. God, he listens and he wants to hear all of us. I think, um, for me, often I don't want to share my doubts, my insecurities with God, because I don't want to share them, realize them in myself. Like, I don't want to even acknowledge the fact that they're there. But these people, they do, and, and God, he wants to hear those things. And if, you know, examples of that, you just look through the Psalms. Again and again, people, they, they work through hard things with God. So they, they tell some things to Jesus, they're honest with him, um, and so he hears them out. We're going to keep moving forward with, with uh, what Michael Willick, he calls the gospel according to Cleopas. So we're transitioning the gospels. We're going to look at the gospels. There's two different gospel presentations here, uh, in a sense. So the first is the gospel according to Cleopas, one of these disciples. Uh, think about, if you were going to talk with someone about the good news of Jesus, what would be the essential elements? Like, I want to make sure they know these important things. Uh, Cleopas, as he describes to Jesus what's been happening, he says, what things happened? Let me tell you, he hits pretty much all of the essential things of the gospel in this description. So listen to, to his response. What things happened? 
about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. They crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who's going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions, they went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. <clears throat> okay, so what are the things that they point out? Uh, several things. So one, Jesus is a man. He's from Nazareth. So some descriptions, even that we help as we talk through prophecy, these things would be helpful, but he's a guy. And he's a prophet. So he's a, he's a mouthpiece of God. He's explaining wisdom of God, also explaining the future. He was mighty in word. So he taught with authority. He taught uh, the scriptures in detail that other people didn't have. He was mighty indeed. He did miracles. They probably saw him heal the sick. He made the lame walk. They would have known these things. So he was mighty indeed. Jesus tragically died on the cross. He was killed by his own people. So he didn't deserve death. He was innocent, but he was killed by his own people. He was meant to redeem Israel. Why did he come? He, he was supposed to be the redeemer. And then on the third day, it's been reported that his body is now missing. Okay, so he, his body is also gone. And so if we were to share the gospel, I would say this is, this is basically all the necessary facts needed to tell people the good news of Jesus, of how we find life in God. That Jesus is the God-man. He was innocent of penalty. His own people killed him. He, he rose from the dead. It is said that he rose from the dead. So what is missing? Well, I think what they did is they took all of these facts about Jesus' life and they assembled them in order and they, they recited them back to this stranger that's walking with them. But they didn't understand what they were describing. So uh, I think about, it'd be like trying to read Spanish. I know very, very little Spanish, but I can read it because it reads mostly like English. Uh, and a couple of rules that you need to know, I think I mostly know those rules. So I can read it, but I don't understand it. It seems like that's what's happening here. It's like they have the facts, but they don't really know what they mean. They, they just recite them back. And the most important thing that, that they didn't understand, that's clear they didn't understand, is that Jesus rose from the dead. Because they're dejected. They're depressed. They're sad. They're like, oh man, all of our hope. These people say these things, but, but they must not be true. And this is important because in order to have the gospel, you have to have that Jesus died on the cross but you also have to have that he defeated death, rose from the dead. Both happened. Michael Ramsey, he said it well. He said, the gospel without resurrection is not merely a gospel without the final chapter. It is not gospel at all. These things, they go together. They're so, Jesus died, but then he rose. This is the hope that we have. But I think these travelers' um, questions, their doubts are so relatable for us uh, in the church and in the world. Uh, I think people often ask questions of God, trying to figure things out, like, am I really a Christian? Right? This is, they, they have their doubts. I think people will ask, am I really a Christian? I know the facts of what gets presented at church, but do I really have the Holy Spirit? Have I really, do I really believe? Am I really a Christian? And these are important questions for all people who go to church. 
But I think there's a special group that this is extra difficult for. And that's for anyone who's grown up in the church. Because someone who's grown up outside the church that hear these truths and then they repent and turn to God, it's like their life looks different. They go this different direction. But someone who's grown up in the church, uh, they've been hearing from birth, God loves you, God created, uh, Jesus died on the cross for your sin, repent and believe. And so they have all these things. And so if, if someone's in church and they're 10, they're 12, they're 14, they're 16, you could be 40 and you've grown up in the church, but you've been hearing this all along. This is a difficult question um, because it's always been assumed that you'd believe. Like, ah, I have to believe. My parents want me to believe this. It's expect that I believe. And probably you want to believe. You're like, this is a good thing. I, I hope that I believe this. And so I'm betting that if you've been to church, especially if you grew up in church, you've asked the question, even if you're like, yeah, I think I believe those things, am I really a Christian? Or am I just a church attender? I have the facts, what do they mean? And I, I share this partially because this person is describing me. So I grew up in church. I grew up uh, going to church every week. My parents did a great job, most weeks, I should say, taking me to church. Uh, I was a Lutheran camp counselor, so I taught kids about Jesus and taught them Bible stories. I helped out with confirmation and I would have said, yes, I'm a Christian. I believe that there's God. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe those things. Uh, but what I learned when I got to college, I got an education, but the real education was in the word of God. I realized I'm not a Christian. I actually, I'm missing some of these essential elements. Uh, and for me, it wasn't, it wasn't the resurrection necessarily. It was sort of all of it. But it started that I didn't understand sin. So I didn't understand uh, the depth of my sin, uh, the need for a savior because of my sin. I, don't, I couldn't have explained why Jesus went to the cross, died and rose again, because if I didn't understand my sin, there's no reason for that. But I thought I could. Like I thought, and the difference was I started to read the Bible seriously. I started to, to talk about it with some friends who are Christians. And it was an awakening for me. Like, man, if the Bible's true, I'm actually gonna go to hell because I'm trying to be good enough for God. I can't be good enough for God. I was lost. And the thing is that the word of God, it all fits together. Like it, it all, it's, it's, it ends up being seamless. And there are some things, if you want to be a Christian, that are required to believe. You have to believe these things. So what are some of the things you have to believe to be a Christian? One, you have to believe that, that there is a God and that he's the creator. You don't have to believe he created in this way, like this amount of time. Or the, that's not important, but that God created you have to also, it is important, it's just not for salvation important. Anyway, okay, uh, you have to believe, uh, you have to believe that you've sinned, that you've wronged a perfect and holy God. Uh, you have to believe uh, that Jesus was God and his son, that, and that when he came, he was perfect, because only a perfect sacrifice could die for sin, and that Jesus died on the cross for sin, that he's the atonement. He's, he pays the debt that we would have to pay for our sin. He pays it. And then he rose from the dead. Those are the essential elements that if you want to be a Christian, you have to believe those things. So if you're here and you understand and say, I understand those things. I understand the essentials. Is that enough? Uh, my answer would be no. Because understanding theology is not salvation. So just, just intellectually, like, I get what you mean. That isn't actually it. And you see that a little bit with Jesus here and these two people he's walking with. Verse 25, it says, He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. See, the issue with these two people, these disciples, these pupils, 
it was, it was not just a head problem, it was a heart problem. He says you're slow to believe. So there's things that you already understand, the things that you already know, but you don't believe them. You're slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. So they have a head knowledge, but they don't believe it here. They don't believe all the things they need to believe in their heart. That hasn't transferred into experiential. It just, it's just staying there. And so I was, they're kind of a religious people. And what God wants is, is for us to, to, to move it out of here and into our heart and to ask him to help us. Lord, I need your help. I, I do recognize I'm a sinner, and I recognize I need a Savior. And so God will help you. But if you're like, yeah, I, I have some of these questions sometimes, and I still have these questions. Am I a Christian? Uh, I have a couple diagnostic questions. These aren't like, thus saith the Lord. These are like just to look into yourself a little bit. Um, and I will say, even the reason some of this is confusing is that some people have come to faith at a young age. So like, they're like, I'm like seven, and I understood my need for Christ, and I became a Christian. The problem with a seven-year-old becoming a Christian is that they become a 10, 12, 14, 16-year-old, and they're developmentally maturing. So they're, they're actually changing because they're changing. So it's actually not a problem for a seven-year-old to become a Christian. That's wonderful. The problem is it's confusing and makes them insecure because one of the things we could ask is, uh, have you grown in the fruits of the Spirit? So one test for my Christian is, is because when somebody becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit enters them. And then Galatians 5, it lays out that, that they're going to grow in love and in joy and in peace and in patience, kindness, goodness, all these godly attributes. They grow because God comes out of them. And so as someone's developing as a child, they're also going to grow in a lot of those attributes. Like, you know, you start to learn about yourself, you start to learn about others. Um, so that is a tricky question for, for younger people, but we should all ask ourselves, is God growing in me? If he's not growing in you, I'd say, do you think you have the Holy Spirit inside of you? The second question, probably should have done this one before that question, is uh, have you ever repented of your sin? And I'm not saying like, uh, I gossiped about this one person and I had to repent. I mean, do you recognize that you're a sinner? Like you've offended a perfect and holy God. That who you are is actually offensive to the holiness of God. And that he loves you enough that he would send his son even in your infractions, even in who you are. And so have you repented of your sin completely? Like, Lord, in all my ways, I need you. So one, have you repented? And then that, that repentance has a prompted change in you. So has, has it started to move you back towards God? You're going one direction, he wants you to go another. Third question that you could ask yourself, final question. Um, actually, we'll have one, one more quick one. Okay, third one. <laughs> if someone was with you for an afternoon or a day, would they think that you're a Christian? Or would they recognize something is different about you? Are you unique in some way? They may not be, put their finger on it, but like this person, something is, is amiss in a good way. Because John 13, it says that, that as Christians love one another, people will know they're, they're Jesus' disciples. But what if you're there and there's not another person to love and, and you know, the brother in Christ, sister in Christ? Well, there's other things, like Philippians 2. It says that you don't argue and you don't complain. It says that, that the Christian's life is so unique that they shine like a star in the universe. It's all black, but there's a person that's different. And you see them. That's how different we should be from the world. Finally, uh, do you know Jesus? Like, do, do you, can you relate to Jesus? Do you understand Jesus? Eternal life in John, John 17, it says, is knowing Jesus, knowing him like a friend. I said, so do you really know him? 
And so what we want is for all of these facts to line up and with God's help to say, God, I, I need your help. I, I can't do this alone. I need you. And so it moves into an act of faith. It transfers from knowledge to heart change. Let's keep moving. So Jesus, he responds to these two. He says, they, they said, this is it. They're missing some things. And then Jesus says, I have some, some thoughts. So this is the gospel of the Old Testament. Again, at this point, they don't know Jesus is Jesus. So this guy, he says to them, how foolish you are. How slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Uh, this is awesome. Wouldn't you just love to be there? Like he, he just lays out everything, everything that is confusing, everything. Remember, their, their life is in disarray because they thought Jesus is a fraud. And now this guy, who, who doesn't seem to be Jesus, explains, your life is not a joke. Like, you have not been wasting your life. You've not been wasting your experience. In fact, all the things that you thought Jesus was, he is. I'm going to show you. And it's not just that, like, I'm going to explain it to you, but we can actually look at the word of God and see how Jesus fits into every place. Or it fits into Jesus. Like, they, they line up together. Uh, let's talk about the, the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Look at, look at Jesus. Uh, we can look at, at the, the major prophets we can look at the 12 minor prophets. We can look at the Psalms. All these things, they point to this guy that you thought was dead and was hopeless. It's actually not hopeless. David Guzik, he put together this list. I thought this was a helpful quick hitter. He says, Jesus, he is the seed of woman whose heel was bruised. Jesus, he is the blessing of Abraham to all nations. He's the high priest like Melchizedek. He's the Passover lamb. He's the son of David who's greater than David from Psalm 110. He's a suffering savior of Psalm 22. He's the good shepherd of Psalm 23. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And he's the Messiah in Daniel with a kingdom that would never end. He was the redeemer of Israel. All these things, as they go down this road, they walk down this road, he explains it to them. And their eyes begin to be opened. I love it. This would be an amazing experience. Uh, Dinsdale Young, he explains it like this. He says, Jesus is not just here, uh, here, of, here in the, of there in that prediction or that prophecy. Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament. He's in the Ark of the Covenant and the blood on the mercy seat. He's in the light of the golden lampstand, the bread of life. He's the prophet who preaches like Moses, the priest who prays like Aaron, the king after David's heart. We follow this method of interpretation. We see Jesus in the redemption of Ruth by Boaz, the selfless sacrifice of Samson, the kingship of Josiah, the miracles of Elijah, and all other types and signs and figures of the Old Testament. See, all scriptures God breathed. God put, put all of this together. And now Jesus becomes this fulfillment. He's the, the key, the interpretive key to all of it. And so we're going to talk a lot more about this next week. So I'm going to stop here. We could, there's a lot more to say, um, but it continues in the next passage. So we're going to... Pause for a moment on this idea. But there are some major implications. Uh, so I'm going to share just two quick hitters of Jesus in the Old Testament. The first one is that there's no such thing as a God of the New Testament. There's a God of the Bible, which is the Old Testament and the New Testament. But have you ever heard someone say like, oh, I just believe in, in Jesus, or I just believe in Jesus of the New Testament, or I just listen to Jesus' teachings. What they're saying is, I can't believe all those other things. They're too much. They can't be true. Um, people view God as like too wrathful or too this. Or that. But Jesus himself says, no, 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 no. All these things, they point back to me. 
So we need Jesus in the Old and the New. Second is the Old Testament is essential to understanding Jesus. You actually need the Old Testament that you'd understand what Jesus has done on the cross, what the death and resurrection means. You know, have you ever, have you ever seen someone who, who has really great beach muscles? Uh, let me explain beach muscles. Beach muscles are like when, uh, like when a guy works on his biceps, his pecs, and his abs really hard. And this is like the six-pack, and like he's, you know, and he takes his shirt off, and everyone's like, wow, that dude. Even the guy's like, that dude, you know. Um, <laughs> but you look a little closer, and then you realize they've got like chicken legs. Like, like they, don't, they haven't worked their legs at all. There's not a leg day in their life. Uh, that person's actually not that healthy, right? Like they look good, not that healthy. That's what it's like when Christians choose to not read the Old Testament. Uh, we take the easy, the easy little hanging fruit. You say, look at all these awesome things in the New Testament. And they, they kind of puff us up, and they, we have a lot of knowledge. We feel good about it. But we, to be fully healthy, you need the leg day, the arm day. The ch- you need all of it, and that includes the Old Testament. So don't skip out an Old Testament reading. It's the whole counsel of God pointing back to Christ. Okay, so this passage ends with them. They're, they're reaching Emmaus, and uh, it's getting late. And so they implore Jesus, Jesus, stay with us. Stay with us. And I don't say Jesus yet. They still don't know. I'm sorry. I keep saying that. They don't know. This guy, hey, stranger who just called us fools, but, <laughs> but also taught us so much. Please eat with us. Stay with us. Um, the hospitality is tremendous. So, so Jesus, he does. And if they hadn't done that, they would have missed the understanding that the guy they're talking to is actually the creator of the universe. So he sits down, they break bread together, and in that moment, their eyes are opened. He's Jesus. Oh, man. Oh, my goodness. And then Jesus is like, I'm gone. I'm out. I've done, my, I've done what I needed to. And these people who are afraid to have Jesus continue and want to be hospitable, they immediately leave, and they go tell the other 11, like, listen, this thing happened. Jesus explained all of it, and we can explain it to you. And they had their own stories. Uh, and it's just this amazing interaction. I want to circle back, though. Remember earlier I asked, why couldn't these two see Jesus? Why didn't, why didn't God allow Jesus to be seen by these, um, these two followers? And I don't want to be dogmatic about this because there's some interpretation here. This is, this is um, I think, why I think it happened. But it, this makes sense to me. And it's that uh, Jesus didn't want his resurrection to distract it kind of sounds confusing. Like, wasn't this the thing? Isn't this the greatest moment in human history? Yes, which is why he didn't want to tell them right away. He says, let me walk you through the scriptures. Let me get your base in the word of God, and then you get to experience me. But it has to start somewhere. And this is important. We see this idea throughout Jesus' ministry of, of people seeing miracles and then only seeing the miracle, missing the point. So like in, in Matthew 11, Jesus, he denounces some towns where he's done miracles. He says, these other places, they should have known who I am. They've seen my miracles, and they don't. Or in John 6, Jesus, he feeds 5,000. So he feeds them, and he's creating bread. So like to feed them, it wasn't like he had 5,000 sandwiches ready. You know, there's this little bit, and he's handing it out, and his disciples are handing it out, and there's more and more and more because Jesus is doing it. And then he tells them, I'm the bread of life. I'm the manna from heaven. And they're like, whoa. That can't be Jesus. That's a hard teaching. And then lots of people leave. They're like, I'm out. I can't follow you. Even though this, this guy has just done this amazing thing, the miracle wasn't enough. When they heard the hard teaching, they left. And I share that because I think experiences are important, but they have to be filtered and understood somehow. I don't want to downplay experiences. Like God, Jesus, he's, he's teaching us all kinds of um, 
The Christian life is experiential. So for instance, you're part of the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12. Like we all fit together. That's really important. The church is living stones built up on one another. This is an experience. We're called to love one another. There's tons of one another commands. So it is experiential. It's not that. But the point is, is that we have to understand what the experience means. We have to, it has to be, it has to be more than that. So the Bible's not anti-experience. It's actually the thing that we need to interpret. The Bible's pro-truth. Uh, and so he didn't tell the, I think he didn't tell these two because he wanted them to understand the scriptures first. This is what it all means. Don't be distracted by the experience. Start with the word of God. Then all these things, they begin to make sense. And this is extra important because you and I, we have a tendency to over-appreciate, overvalue experience, and undervalue the word of God. That we start with the experience and then we proof back to the word of God. But we want our faith to be rooted in a foundation that's in the word. We start here and we build on top of that because the word will reveal what is true. The word reveals what experiences mean. That's super helpful. What does this mean? What does God teach it means? And this is important because experiences, they can lie to us. We think something is true, but our experience can trick us. Satan, he's the father of lies. Satan, he masquerades as an angel of light. And so this can feel so good and so true. But what does God's word say? And he, he'll take, you know, Satan's, he's crafty, so he doesn't take like a ridiculous lie. He doesn't say like, you know, like, hey, you wouldn't believe what happened yesterday. Like this anaconda slithered in my house, and then it ate all of my children, but then I cut them open, and then they survived. It's like, that's not the kind of lie that Satan tells. He takes the, the close to the truth and just twists it a little bit. I think this is where you see things like the sexual revolution happening, where, where um, the message became not, not God is made, that, that sex is made for marriage, but that if you just love someone, if you love someone enough, then, then it's free game, it's great. And so that, that started to degrade marriage, and it, it has had this cascading effect over time, but he just twisted the meaning of love just a little bit that he could trick us and deceive us, and we bought it. But if we go back to the Word of God, we wouldn't have had to buy it, but, but we have as a, in general, as a society. And even some of our experiences collide to us, like some religions are really heavy on this, like Mormonism. They elevate experience to truth. They would say, uh, did, you, did you feel that? Was there like a burning in your bosom as I shared those things with you? Sort of like the disciples said, how their hearts were burning. They're using that same example because they say, how we feel is actually what's the truth. Well, maybe. But remember, we have... We have the father of lies, the one masquerading as the angel of light who also is trying to give us messages. And so we want to filter all of our experiences through the word of God that we'd understand the truth. And the tremendous blessing here is, is you see like in John 15 when it says, it says that God's, um, when we obey what God has called us to, he says we're overflowing with joy. Why? Because he's, he's given us a path in life that actually makes the most sense now and into eternity. He knows us. So God's word and experiences, they go together. They work in concert with one another, not apart from one another, but we need both. Okay, so let's, let's finish this up. How can we apply what we talked about today? Well, first, remember the entire scriptures, they point uh, to Jesus, and our faith should primarily be built on the scriptures. So the beginning that we base our faith on is on the word of God. So what should we do? One, I'd say walk by faith. Walk by faith means you, you read the word of God and you say, Lord, I think this is true. You tell me it's true. This is how I want to understand. That's how I believe I'm supposed to understand it. Um, so we want to walk by faith. Second, uh, my recommendation would be to read the Old Testament. 
And as you read it, look for Jesus. So if you're reading something else, great, keep reading that, but also be reading the Old Testament. Don't neglect it, don't put it out. It's actually helpful to understand the whole counsel of God. And then finally, filter life through the Bible. And as other people help you filter life, use the word of God. As you help others filter life, go through God's word. He has so much instruction that will help us and guide us. Um, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, that we can look from the beginning to the end and see Christ. Thank you that you love us enough that you would die and you would rise. I pray if there's anyone here who's really doubting, who says, like, I know these facts, but, but I don't think I've ever really repented, Lord. I pray that today they would repent. Today they'd find salvation. Move in them, Lord. God, I pray that uh, we'd be a church who loves you and, and rightly loves your word. God, help us to study it and know it and understand it. Lord, continue to help us to abide in the spirit, Lord, that, that, that guides us in what's true. Uh, we need your help in all of this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.